It's Muppeturgy with a bird brain episode about the Leo Sayer episode of The Muppet Show with our own very special guest star, Susan Casey. Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm David Levy, and here today are Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, Adam Grossworth, and our aforementioned special guest star, Susan. Hey, Susan. Hey, hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here with us. Susan Casey is a retired Aquarius with perfect pitch from Louisville, Kentucky. While the rumors of her appearing on Broadway that circulated around her kids' middle school in 1997 are unfounded, her adventures have taken her through, among others, the wild worlds of real estate, flea markets, and Girl Scout troop leadership. She is a pop culture enthusiast with a lot of opinions about HGTV, every Bravo show that's set in LA, and the Lawrence Welk show. In addition to Muppeturgy's own Christy Bauer, she is the proud mother of Casey, an elementary school principal, and grandmother of two brilliant human grandkids, Oscar and Beatrice, and two grand dogs, Pickles and Elvira. Uh, and just to be clear, she is Christy's mom, not co-parent with Christy of Casey. <laughs> oh. Susan, tell us a little bit about your history with the Muppets. Well, I've got a long history with the Muppets. I started out uh, being a fan when the show was on when I was a teenager. We couldn't miss the Muppet show. It was just like, you know, in stone, you know. You know, I was like, well, we got to go do something. No, no, we got to watch the Muppets. So, and then when Christy came along, she reintroduced me to them. And I don't know if she'll want me to tell this story. Yeah, but, you can tell it. <laughs> but when she was three, from the time she was three until she was five, she would only answer to the name Ernie. Because she was such a fan of Sesame Street. <laughs> and like the, ki- the kids in the neighborhood, they would be like, hi, Ernie, hi, Ernie. And I was like, oh, they're talking to my child. You know, so, uh, <laughs> I think Christy has shared so, that story on the podcast at least once. Yes. Sure. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, the Muppets have played a big part in our life. And Muppets Take Manhattan, that was always on rotation at our house. And uh, yeah, and this has been fun. Uh, listen to you guys do the profiles on the episodes and uh, yeah i'm just thrilled to be here we're so glad you're here too we're especially glad not just because you're christy's mom but uh, as we wander into the depths of the 70s uh you know there's only so much perspective we have as people who were either not yet born or very very little so um someone who was a teenager at the time when these guests were very popular with teenagers, is a great addition, I think, especially this week. I'm glad to share any any answers to any questions that you have. Great, because we've got at least one big one, which is, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get there. <laughs> I, I, f- I feel like there are equally weird, if not weirder, pop stars today. <laughs> I just watched this week's Saturday Night Live, which you won't listen to this for a while, but Post Malone. <laughs> Um, okay, so this episode is season three, episode two of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of February 21st, 1978, and it aired in New York City on December 4th, 1978. A quick pedantic note about air dates. We touched on the unscientificness of this last week and many times in the past. And this week, I noticed that Muppet Wiki lists all of this season's episodes as airing on Saturdays, which they probably did somewhere because the show was syndicated and actually, I I remember this as being a weekend situation, and I'm from New York City. But anyway, um, the New York Times archives confirms 
that in New York City, in first run, they were still on Monday nights at 7.30 on Channel 2. So we are going with that just in case you are fact-checking us, which we always welcome. It has happened in the past. It will surely happen again. But we're right about this. Um, what so if this the time was- strike was because they had been printing the wrong air dates for the Muppet oh, Show? Oh, maybe. We're not... Th- well, that is in the past, but our future. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, so we'll get there. Uh, on December 4th, 1978, this was number 12 in the air order, two weeks after Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge. In the news, Jonestown is still on the front page of the New York Times two weeks later, um, but let's not talk about that. Inside the paper, it is Christmas uh, with some amazing full-page ads for Macy's featuring calculators and phones, including the Superphone 7700. We will have screenshots of those in the show notes obviously. On television, WLIW-TV, which is Long Island's PBS station, is off the air while its transmitter is being moved. Wild. And it's like (laughs) in the listings as if it were a show. I'd watch that. (laughs) No, you wouldn't. You literally could not. It reminds me of there, there was a time when I was in high school that one of the local radio stations was in format limbo. And for six weeks, they just played I Am the Walrus on a loop. Wow. And, and, and it's all we listened to. We'd get in the car and we would just listen to I Am the Walrus, like from point A to point B. Like it was normal. <laughs> Christy's mom, is that real? Did Christy make this up? I know it's hard to believe, but it is true. <laughs> <laughs> like they couldn't even put on the whole album? No, no, just, well, they ultimately, it became, I think, a classic rock station and they named it the Walrus. So it ended up like, you know, having a reason. But With at the Lord. time we're like, we have no idea why this is happening, but we're kind of hypnotized by it. And we Amazing. Kept it on. <laughs> huh. Uh, the Rockefeller Center tree lighting uh, was tonight hosted by Phil Donahue. Uh, we mentioned last week that the Carol Burnett show had ended, but we do have tonight Carol Burnett and Friends, which is syndicated. And half an uh, hour. And half an hour. So I, that wasn't listed in the premieres or I missed it uh, when I researched those. So I don't know if they overlapped or if I'm just a dummy. It's just a re-edit, repackaging of the Carol Burnett show. Oh, yeah. God. It's the version that like is on like MeTV right now. It's the half hour version. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that they live on. On great performances, Mikhail Baryshnikov makes his debut with the New York City Ballet, which feels like a cultural milestone. Less so, the NBC movie Suddenly Love, starring Cindy Williams and Paul Sheenar. A young woman from the ghetto falls in love with a socially prominent lawyer. Wait, Cindy Williams is the young woman from the ghetto? They don't say what kind of ghetto. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So yes, apparently so. Hmm. Uh, guests on The Tonight Show are Lou Rawls, Sandy Duncan, and Loretta Lynn, notable because they are all, of course, Muppet Show guests. And the midnight movie on Channel 9 is The Werewolf, and the description is, like it says, period, chomp, comma, chomp, period. So this is now apparently <laughs> a thing the New York Times is doing, and I won't read those every week, I, but it's... Yes, you will. I, I, I <laughs> if they're good, I don't know. I just... It seems so off-brand, but I, it's... It's a thing. Somebody got shoved this at yeah, some, with a one-minute deadline. Well, I mean, imagine the job of writing the TV listings. Uh, was someone's job, so you know yeah. you got to make your own fun. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you.
Leo Sayer is a wee man. (laughs) 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 He's a tiny British singer-songwriter who had a string of international hits in the 1970s. Born in 1948 to an Irish mother and an English father, Leo grew up in England as the second of three brothers. He was discovered in his early 20s by British singer-songwriter David Courtney, who connected him to Adam Faith, another British singer-songwriter who was then a producer and manager. Near the start of his career, Leo and David co-wrote the song Giving It All Away, which became the first solo hit for The Who's Roger Daltrey. Leo's first single on his own didn't elicit much excitement, but his second, The Show Must Go On, went to number two in the UK, following a television performance in which he did the song in full Perot costume and makeup. We'll put that in the show notes, because I think it helps give a little context for the performance of the song he does on The Muppet Show. Oh, I'm tired already. The album that featured this song also went to number two, and Three Dog Night had their last Billboard Top 10 hit with a cover of that song. From there, Leo's star continued to rise in the UK and abroad. By 1977, he hit a career high point when he had two back-to-back number ones in the US, both of which you'll hear on The Muppet Show, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing and When I Need You. You Make Me Feel Like Dancing also won a Grammy Award for Best Rhythm and Blues Song. I don't know. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? That makes what? about as much sense as Kermit saying that Leo is a real rocker. So, uh, you know, maybe genres were just different in the set. There it's is a, a little crazy story about that Grammy that we are going to get into. Okay. Right. Oh, great. I can't wait to learn. Yeah. Uh, in the 80s, he made headlines for financial difficulties that were uncovered when he and his wife split. Those were attributed to mismanagement by Adam Faith, and they had a real messy public fight about it. Sarah and Faith settled, but by the 90s, Leo had another long fight on his plate, this time with his former label, Chrysalis, but the result was that he succeeded in regaining the publishing rights to his songs. Financial misfortune found him again in the mid-1990s when he discovered his pension fund had been mismanaged. He attempted another big fight, but ran out of money and had to cut his losses. According to Wikipedia, he went back on the road and, quote, toward his way to financial security. In 2005, he moved to Australia and earned citizenship there in 2009. He's still recording. His latest album came out this year, a collection of Beatle covers called Northern Songs. And that's everything I have to say about Leo Sayer. Does anyone else have uh, Leo Sayer feelings? I mean, my entire Leo Sayer feelings are... Uh, he's a guy who uh, did some songs that my mom listens to a lot. <laughs> yeah, is it safe to say I kind of am a fan of his? <laughs> it's a big part of why you're here, so please oh, okay. tell us more. <laughs> you're welcome here. Yeah, I don't really know why, but he just, uh, I, I've always loved his music. That's all I got. Sorry, I know it's kind of one of those strange but true things. So. When, when he was at his height, did well, I don't even know how to ask a question? <laughs> oh, no. Start again without any. No, no, like, where, where did he fit? Because, like, I, looking at him with you know forty years removed from the height of his popularity, I could see him fitting in a little bit with glam rock. And I know that he did actually perform with Roxy Music, uh, but I also see like you make me feel like dancing feels like disco to me. But Kermit calls him a rocker, and so like. Uh, you know, where in the seventies did he sort of fit into this constellation of music, which, you know, looking back feels like it was pretty distinct and separate. And there wasn't a ton of crossover like that. Um, I would have considered him kind of like a pop 
pop 40 type person, mm-hmm. you know? Definitely not rock, right? No, oh, no, 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 not at all. But he wasn't like like a teen idol necessarily. He was more just no. kind of middle of the road. Yeah. Top 40, right? Exactly. We know Animal's a fan. So Susan, you've shared uh, your thoughts about Leo Sayer. How do you feel about this episode of The Muppet Show? Oh, I thought it was really enjoyable. I, I watched it probably three or four times. And yeah, I didn't realize he was a, such a good dance. Well, I wouldn't say good, but a frenetic <laughs> type say. dancer. <laughs> kind of a frenetic type dancer, but uh, I was kind of shocked at that. <laughs> but compared to some of the ones that I've seen, I thought it was, I, I rated about an eight, I guess out of 10, maybe. Michal. Yeah, that ranking sounds about right to me. Uh, this is good, clean fun. Between Annie Sue and Leo Sayer, there's a whole lot of perm happening this episode. There's <laughs> a lot of hair going on. Uh, not as much rock music as I was led to expect, so deducting a point for that. But it's a good time. I got no complaints. Questions. <laughs> but not really complaints. David? Yeah, I like this episode. It's, you know, maybe not an all-timer, but it's definitely like... As good as an average episode gets. So happy to happy to be here. Happy to talk about it. Christy? I agree with everybody. I think this one's a lot of fun. I mean, it's pretty middle of the road, but half of me is just so happy to have a piggy plot that doesn't involve her weight that I maybe <laughs> am giving this one a little extra credit. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't think this one's going to stick with me for super long, but I had a good time. Mom and I watched it together. And we definitely had some like major laugh out loud moments. So that always rates it pretty high in my book. Yeah, it's weird because it's, it's really like structurally similar to the Elton John episode, I think, and the the Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge, right? It's a singer who is not an actor, who basically is just goes out and does his songs with some Muppets around him. But it works better, even though, right, like I think you know, the Elton John songs are unquestionable classics and these maybe are not. But I don't know. It I really liked it. And maybe it was the the power of low expectations, but then I watched it two more times. So yeah, I don't know. I had a really good time. I think it's, it's also like there's a there's a, a proper backstage plot. And he's he's weirdly charming emphasis on the weird part. But like, so is Elton John and that didn't work. I don't know. <laughs> Leo Sayer is willing to engage with the Muppets, I think, in a way that Elton John is not. He's willing to yes. get up and dance around and put himself out in a mime costume and go out on a limb, literally. It's also really interesting that none of his musical numbers really have him interacting with any of the like core Muppet cast. There some of them are like playing behind him, but he doesn't really interact with them. And then also this episode doesn't have any of the recurring sketches. There's no newsman, no hospital, no Muppet labs. And yet it all sort of coheres. I don't know. I thought that was, it sort of uh, defies what I would have thought of as rules for a successful episode. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Let's get into it. Leo Sayer, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Sayer. Thank you, Scooter. You know, I don't really believe that this is the Muppet Show. It's so quiet in here, you can almost hear a pin drop. (laughs) Oh, 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 strike! (laughs) 
So Leo Sayer, not only a real rocker, he has a healthy sense of skepticism uh, until Behemoth and Lunch Encounter Monster drop a set of bowling pins onto his head. He doesn't believe he's in the right place. And I love that one of the pins is just broken in half already when it lands on him. And looks real. Yeah. I'm sure it can't be. But I was struck by that broken pin as well. Yeah. Do you need an aspirin? If you were struck by the pin. Batman <laughs> <laughs> Waldorf always saying the show is hoopless. <laughs> Speaking of which, Statler and Waldorf are also skeptical of this episode. Come back here, Statler. If I have to stay and watch this, so do you. Yep. At the end of the theme song, Gonzo blows his trumpet. Something flies out. To me, it looks like confetti. The wiki says that it sparks. But Gonzo yells, my teeth. Is it all teeth? Is it hundreds of teeth? It's a lot of teeth. (laughs) It was a horrifying moment when he said that. Like. It's weird. It's weird the wiki says it's sparks. It's clearly not sparks. It, there's a sound effect that goes with it that makes me think that that they are trying to sell the teeth thing, but it's obviously confetti. Also, ew. Also, does Gonzo uh, have teeth? No. Yeah, not anymore. Or should he, as we have discussed. Yeah, no, thank you. I noticed something weird in the opening credits sequence this week. And so the, there's a shot early on. Uh, I think it, it's when they're pulling. They're pulling towards pull, pulling away from Kermit uh, it, when when he uh, announces the guest star. Where you see the backs of the Muppets in the front row in silhouette, and there's clearly somebody in a bonnet that looks like Miss Mousy. But then when the row of female Muppets comes out, there's Miss Mousy. <laughs> so it's like Mousyception, like Mouseception. <laughs> it's like you think only one person can wear a bonnet. I, I mean. Have you seen anyone else wear a bonnet in that theater? Regularly? <laughs> I mean, Cloris Leachman. Okay. But I, 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 I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I mean, I just feel like we have another too many Floyd situation on our hands. Oh, no. Don't put that in our heads. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. This week backstage. And on stage, we will officially meet Annie Sue Pig. We also met her last week, but heck, let's meet her again for the very first time. Well, of course not, Kermit. You said she was a girl singer. I am a woman singer? Yeah, yeah, well, that, that, that is true. So, uh, what is, uh, what is she, a chicken? Uh, what, a goat? She's not a frog, is she? Uh, no, no, she's a, uh, well, she's a, uh, she's a, a pig. She's a pig. Another girl pig singer? Yeah, but uh, but you're a woman. Forget that. Who cares? Yeah, but like like I say, she's nothing like you. I mean, uh, she's she's very young. What? Oh dear. Uh, another newsflash. Frank Oz, good at this. Yeah, good at his job. Uh, Miss Piggy heads to her dressing room to sort her feelings out. Meanwhile, Annie Sue's debut on stage is making a real splash. I love her. Oh, that little bundle of talent's the only thing that'll keep this show going. Shall we shoot her now before she ruins everything? <laughs> it's pretty intense. It's a lot. Yeah. She didn't do anything. I mean, she right. showed up with talent. Oh, well. <laughs> so, uh, awkward segue from that clip, but uh, is it me or does Annie Sue not, not seem that young? She looks adorable. 
it's just adorable, but like it, the hair or the voice, the eye makeup, I don't know. It's just something, I mean, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know what a pig ingenue would look like, to be clear. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't want her to look like a, like a piglet, but I don't know. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> We've had piglets on the it's show. It's just a weird thing in this world of the Muppets, because I think it's a, it's a challenging thing to differentiate. And I, I don't know if it's a thing that they could be doing with costume or with hair or what. But well, I also wonder if, and Susan, you can weigh in on this. In 1978, was a perm considered more of a young person's hairstyle? Yeah, I think so. I mean, did you ever have one? Uh, no, because when I was little, mom put something on my hair and it caused it to where it won't ever perm. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's another story in itself. <laughs> Her hair is also very Annie. Yeah, like yeah. Orphan Annie. So that could be. That could be a thing. Uh, I had Farrah Fawcett type hair. You did with the world of hot curlers. See, I think that I think that would be a better choice for her. But I guess I don't know. I mean, listen, the Muppets have tried different pig ingenues over the years, and uh, you look at Spamela Henderson from the '90s or Denise from uh, more recent times, and none of them really succeed in looking younger than Miss Piggy. They. Those two just end up looking like they've had work done. Right, right. They look sluttier than Miss Piggy, but not younger than Miss Piggy. <laughs> let's just let's just call it what it is. I think they do something with her eyeliner that makes her look more wide-eyed, less experienced than Miss Piggy. Just going out there, Piglet, and she's going to come back a star. That's right. So before we debate whether Annie Sue's appearance on the show is part of an elaborate prank on Miss Piggy... Uh, let's hear Kermit purporting to make it all up to her. He surprises Miss Piggy by sending her on stage to do the dramatic recitation she's always dreamed of doing. She is on a set that is blanketed with flowers. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vales and hills. <laughs> when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. Watch! <laughs> Sorry. Beside the lake. <clears throat> Beside the tree. <laughs> at the end of this, the audience sneezes back at her and she gets yanked backwards behind a piece of the set that falls down over her. And she's wearing this like blue dress, nightgown situation that I love. She looks very comfortable. It's also a great color. <laughs> very into it. Yeah. Too bad it was ruined. Well. Uh, so then she comes backstage. All right. Where is El Slimo? Who put the sneezing powder in the flowers? Meanwhile, Rolf, whose uh, piano got sneezed off stage, is like picking at the debris that has landed on his piano. It is the piano, right? I think the piano is all broken. It's like little hammers. Yeah. I oh, that's what those are. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's a really there's some really good prop work this week in general. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice bit. Well done. Did Kermit put sneezing powder in the flowers? Did he also bring Annie Sue at the same time just to see what Miss Piggy would do? Did Annie Sue put sneezing powder in the flowers? Well, is Annie Sue even aware of how Miss Piggy feels about her? No, she's oblivious. I don't, I mean, because then Kermit sneezes. There's no resolution to this. I, I, I believe it's just a shit ton of flowers. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what I think yeah. it's supposed to be. 
And and I, yeah, I don't think we're meant to believe that anybody actually sabotaged the act. I wouldn't put it past those flowers. I mean, I or past Kermit, but given that I wouldn't we're... put it past Scooter. <laughs> yeah. Conspicuously absent. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> Never see Scooter and Annie Sue in the same place at the same time. I really like, we didn't clip it, but the scene before the daffodils bit, I don't know what to call it, the number, the act, whatever, where, you know, Piggy is clearly upset. This is after Annie Sue's number that we'll hear when we get to the music. And Piggy is clearly upset. And Kermit is like, hey, I have a surprise for you. This thing you've always wanted to do, you get to go do it right now. Which is a hell of a set change because suddenly the entire stage is covered in apparently fresh, real flowers that were not there a minute ago. And it's just like we've talked about Kermit being kind of a bad boss. And it's this sort of lovely moment with Piggy where he sees that she's upset and he does something that makes her happy that ends up going very badly. But let's assume it's not his fault and he didn't actually sabotage her. That's that's I'm choosing to believe that. Um, I don't know. I just found it sort of strangely lovely and nice to see him being a good manager for a change. He remembered something that Miss Piggy wanted and gave it to her. That yeah. could be thoughtful. I don't think doing like an elaborate production without a rehearsal or warning is really lovely. Like that's uh, that's like actor's nightmare territory, I think. Like no matter how much you wanted to do it, to do it with no notice with without a tech rehearsal, which by the way, would have uncovered the problem with the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> that's no practice. That's a fair point. But if anybody in that theater is like, all right, I'm ready to go. It's Piggy. Right. And she was. Yeah. She was off book. Yeah. He said that dramatic recitation you've always wanted to do. And like, yeah, she can recite it. She has it memorized already. So I have a couple of thoughts about Piggy this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, I, I don't know if I've ever made this comparison before. I, I know that I've commented before on how striking Piggy's eyes are. Like, Piggy has gorgeous eyes for a Muppet. (laughs) But they remind me of, there was a time that I was in Midtown Manhattan walking around and I was struck by this guy's eyes. Just, I was like, oh my God, this guy has the most piercing, stunning blue eyes I've ever seen on a human. And then I looked over and I was like, and he's standing next to Jennifer Connelly. That's Paul Bettany. Um... (laughs) I, 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 anyway, all of which is to say, I had this moment where I went, wow, Miss Piggy has Paul Bettany eyes, which is wow. definitely a sentence that I don't think has ever been uttered by a human. So I, I would have said that Paul Bettany has Miss Piggy eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that song from the 80s. <laughs> there we go. But my, my other thought is, I think that Piggy at this point in the evolution of the Muppet show may be the most developed thought out character of all of them you know i mean like we've already remarked on the the genius of frank oz but if somebody was like you know show me an episode that demonstrates the depth and range of miss piggy i think i would maybe point them to this one well at this point she's maybe the only three-dimensional muppet character and i would argue that the only one who eventually also gets there is gonzo yeah yeah i think at this point you're right that Miss Piggy is the most developed character and Fozzie is a close second. There's, there's something to that uh, Frank Oz trick of <laughs> writing elaborate backstories for his characters. Seems to work out. So, uh, given all this, Miss Piggy retreats to her dressing room, but her troubles follow her. Oh, Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy! <laughs> all right. 
Oh, I can't believe it. Here I am, face to face with a real superstar. I can actually reach out and touch you. <laughs> but I won't. I never thought it could happen. I've been an admirer of yours ever since I was a little baby. Oh. <laughs> it was so nice of you to open your door to me. Well, uh, we must do it again sometime, my dear. Oh, Ren! Well, right now. <laughs> do drop in again sometime. I don't really have anything to say about that scene, except that I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for including the clink at the end of the star falling off of Miss Piggy's dressing room door. Whew. That's intense. It, consider, especially considering that Louise Gold is brand new. Like they're just they're they're really great together. It feels very real, even though it's also very old shtick. It just brings me joy. So Miss Piggy is not handling things especially professionally, and then again, neither is Kermit. They seem to like it. Oh, you were wonderful, Annie Sue. Oh, thank you, Kermit, sir, but I really didn't do that much. Oh, well, you just saved Fozzie's act, that's all. Really? Sure. Oh. <laughs> I'd say that that bear was in a lot of trouble. Yeah! Oh, oh, oh. Now it's the frog's turn! <laughs> yeah, that was the sound of Miss Piggy dropping down onto Kermit like a drop bear. Off the dressing room balcony. Yeah. We probably didn't need that clip, but there will be a gif in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it's good to know what you're watching when you see that gif and watch it over and over and over again and try to figure out where they changed the camera. I mean, you can see where they changed the camera, but it's still fun to watch. So everybody put on your dancing shoes or maybe your flailing shoes. Sitting on the floor shoes. My yeah. rock shoes. Yeah, you're uh, sure. Yeah. Because we're, we're in for some music. Maybe not the music that is promised or described, but some music. We start with a, a genre clarification. Hey, we're very excited about tonight's guest star because it's not very often that we have any really good rock on the show. Uh, yeah, we rocks are pretty upset by it. I, I, I suppose that's true. I guess we've been taking you for granted. My lucky rock with no sense of humor. Get out of here. Okay, as I was trying to say, here is one of the truly great stars of rock music, the delightful Mr. Leo Sayer, who makes us feel like dancing. Rocco's dad. <laughs> <laughs> Still really ornery. Uh, ornery. Oh. oh. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is introduced as rock music, but you be the judge. Just snap your fingers and I'm walking. Like a dog hanging on your lead. I'm in a spin, you know, shaking on a string, you know. You make me feel like dancing. I wanna dance the night away. You make me feel like dancing. I wanna dance the night away. You make me feel like dancing. I feel like dancing, woo, dancing, dance the night away. I feel like dancing, woo, dancing. Yeah, 
Rock music. Sure. I mean, it's it's a well-known disco classic. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a weird it's a weird move for all involved. But yeah, this is You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, which is one of Leo Sayer's number one hits. It was uh, a hit for him in 1977, so it was a very recent hit at this particular point in time. So this would be like, I don't know, having a Harry Styles on. Well, he's not quite as big as Harry Styles. Like, I don't know. Lizzo? Lizzo, yeah. That's that's a good, sort of good <laughs> corollary. Yeah, it was it, uh, hit number one on the Hot 100. And uh, he won a, a Grammy for uh, Best R&B Song. The song is credited to him. So his full name, uh, we haven't mentioned yet, is Gerard Husayer. Don't know where you get Leo out of that, but sure. So him and to Vinnie Poncia, but uh, and I love this because I, I my mom uh, doesn't know this, and you're going to get to hear her freak out in real time on a podcast. Uh, so the song, in actuality, was written by Ray Parker Jr. of Ghostbusters <gasps> fame. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, according to uh, an interview from 2020 in Variety with Ray Parker Jr. I'm just going to read this because it's mind-blowing. For all of his early success, though, there were dues to pay, including one that still hurts to this day. It started with a song he'd written and recorded called You Make Me Feel Like Dancing that he presented to a label suit in 1976. He said, hey, if you cut that with Leo Sayer, I'll give you part of the song, Parker, 66 recalls. Well, I never got my part of the song. Anyway, they go on to say, you know, that it went to number one. He never got credited it won the Grammy and uh, he, he didn't get the Grammy. And, and he said, it, it kind of hurts when you see somebody on TV collecting a Grammy for your song. And here's my mother in Detroit. I haven't bought her a house yet. He says, calling it one of the lowest points of my life. Every time I hear the song on the radio, the first thing that comes to my mind is I don't have a Grammy for that. And my name isn't on it. And nobody recognizes me for writing that song. And then he goes on and at least is very nice. He says, Parker doesn't blame Sayer for the behind the scenes machinations, insisting that it was a higher ups decision not to put his name on the record. It's not Leo's fault. He insists. He tried to cut six or seven more of my songs just because he felt so bad. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad I was sitting down. (laughs) (laughs) It's just extra funny because we were talking about Ray Parker Jr. The other day. Right. The, the the year the Ghostbusters was big, my dad and a couple of their friends at the time all dressed up in the same suit that Ray Parker Jr. wears on the album cover for Ghostbusters, like for Halloween or something. Or was it just like a random thing? No, it wasn't for Halloween. We were just going out one night. <laughs> As one does. Sure. Yes. <laughs> like from- you dress like somebody on an album cover, you know? Yeah. It was a pink shirt and a white suit i think yeah yeah if i remember correctly i'm glad he had ghostbusters <laughs> still ahead of him at this point yeah, yeah. for sure <laughs> so i'm looking but, it up he was born in 1954 he was like 20 years old when he wrote the song yeah did he get royalties for it you know what's strange is i looked it up in the ascap database and he still isn't credited for it i don't know if it's a thing that retroactively like I, it may be more hassle than it's worth at this point, but hmm. like, especially with like, the Grammy and all of that, it's like, I, he must've signed some sort of agreement, like some sort of bad deal, you know, where he, without realizing it signed away his publishing rights. It's terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. But hey, who are you going to call? <laughs> Lawyers. Uh, 
sorry. <laughs> no, somebody was going to have to say it eventually. It was just inevitable. <laughs> but I did give birth to her, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this quote. This is terrible. There's this quote that's attributed to Boy George, and it's all over the internet, but I couldn't I couldn't confirm it. But uh, he allegedly said about Prince, bear with me, <laughs> that Prince looks like a dwarf who's been dipped in a bucket of pubic hair. <laughs> which is which is deeply unfair to Prince and little people and pubic hair and frankly buckets. But but it's very funny, and, and the second that Leo Sayer appeared on stage, this popped into my head, and I just couldn't shake it. And I, I, I had to release it to all of you. I just thought he looked like a Coloscola character. Like it's hard to believe that this is a person, not a person doing a parody of a person. Yeah. Part of what makes it so weird, I mean, he is he is very, very small, and we didn't we didn't set this up. He is so remember the creepy dancers from the Charles Aznavour episode? It's like that, only now they're birds. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure if that's more or I guess it's it I find it less creepy because like the human faces without mouths is what made that so creepy, but they're not not creepy <laughs> that yeah. they have bird heads. They're not trying to be Muppets. They just look like birds. They look like yeah. taxidermied birds sitting on people heads, people bodies. It sort of struck me as being like Sid and Marty Croft's Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. So there's these very like 70s, like tall, lean dancer bodies in creepy eyes wide shut bird heads. <laughs> and then and then one like very Muppety, you know, full body Muppet bird. And then tiny, tiny Leo Sayer pops out. <laughs> <laughs> and part of what I think makes it really weird is that he's obviously lip syncing and the falsetto he's doing to me, like, seems extra weird when it's lip-synced. Because, like, like your your body has to do things to make that sound, and his is clearly not doing any of them. So, like, there's, like, a weird Uncanny Valley effect to, like, everything that's happening. I really like this song, and I really like this number. I think it's very fun. But, like, I also couldn't shake, like, how strange it is. So these birds also will recur which I had sort of forgotten about them. And then the minute they show up on the screen, I was like, oh, right, those bird guys. And they're in at least two other episodes. And they're performed by dancers from London's Royal Ballet, which I feel like they didn't fully take advantage of this time around. This is a Jillian Lynn joint. And, you know, the, the birds to cats path is not long, I will say. <laughs> oh, and then we also have the featured bird. Whose name is Fletcher Bird. The feature bird is Fletcher Bird. Sure. Who's named after the dancer Gregory Fletcher, is that right? Graham Fletcher. Fletcher. Graham Fletcher, who we saw on the Rudolf Noriev episode as uh the pig ballerina. And again, like on the one hand, I think it's great that they've recognized that this dancer has a particular talent that they want to bring back and use again and again, that they create a character for him. But if you're gonna create a full body Muppet character to show off a ballet dancer's skills, Fletcher Bird feels like entirely the wrong one because it's sort of like big and baggy and bulky. And so he ends up dancing more like like a costume character in a Disney park parade than like <laughs> a very talented ballet dancer. I, I, the whole thing just was so weird. I mean, yeah. he, 
he, he sort of reminded me of like if you had given Miss Finch from Follow That Bird like <laughs> quaaludes. Yes. Well, and then so we touched on this a little bit in the intro. Leo Thayer cannot dance. He may feel like dancing, <laughs> but he cannot do it. And so he's like flailing, he's flailing around. And then at one point, he's, he, I guess like he gets knocked over by the bird and winds up sitting on the floor. But then he just stays there. He just sits cross-legged on the floor and like looks up at, at Fletcher Bird's crotch for a while, which is <laughs> awkward. <laughs> It's just so I mean he's so enthusiastic which is which is throughout the entire episode which is which is the thing that makes it endearing but like it's it's so strange. Well, you know, honestly, I thought the the tall muppets dancing around I didn't it just didn't fit to me at all. It just seemed like it pointed out his maybe some of his inadequacies. So, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't like the Muppets that are like that. The that are the humans dressed in the in the. Uh, I don't. It's just my personal preference. But yeah. it can be a bit unsettling. That's totally fair. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but yeah, I loved seeing him dance. I mean, or whatever he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he's cute, which is really unsettling in the fact that he resembled my second husband but you know. <laughs> <laughs> can confirm yeah <laughs> there's something about him reminds me of me when i was young what is it well mainly his age <laughs> so the the reign of terror of abe burrows on the muppet show continues <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that that is our, our newly minted star, a- Annie Sue Pig, singing a song called Carbon Paper, which uh, is an Abe Burroughs song. And I'm just convinced that Jim Henson lost a bet to Abe Burroughs because th- it's a lot of Abe Burroughs content <laughs> in seasons two and three. And not only that, we will see this song again in season four. So, Well, that your- seems unnecessary. Yeah, and on right? The Rolf album, Old Brown Ears is back. Yeah, it's a it's a Rolf version in season four. Yeah, so uh, a Burroughs song that he premiered on his uh, eponymous radio show. And if you've walked away from these experiences thinking, man, I just need to know everything there is to know about a Burroughs. I need to like really get to know the man. Uh, apparently the original score for this, along with most of a Burroughs papers, can be accessed for research purposes in the Billy Rose Theater Division of the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. You have to call and make arrangements in advance to keep them off site. But, uh, oh, man. Yeah, you, you, you can really, I was about to say, get your feet wet. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm just picturing the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. <laughs> Only in reverse. Somebody has to go get them and pull them out. Yeah. If you don't call in advance, like a, a boulder chases you through the <laughs> Lincoln Center. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah, uh, there are those ramps and stuff. Uh, unlike the other Averroes numbers, I found this charming. Maybe just because I really like carbon paper and I kind of miss it. Sure. I don't know. I really liked playing with carbon paper when I was a kid. <laughs> My dad was a professional writer, so we actually like had a lot of it in the house. 
because he like used it. And then there was like that period when like like certain documents and contracts and things like still involve carbon paper even when we were using computers. So like I would I worked in offices where like there would be a typewriter like just for that. So I have a weird nostalgia for carbon paper. I mean, in my office, carbon still? paper only went out a couple years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I mean those were those were some of the reasons why I had a typewriter in my life. I do enjoy the smell of it. Right. And as with other Abe Burroughs songs that we've heard, this is, this is cleverly written. It's a fun song. Each Devin Pigeonal knows who got the original. Know who got the original. That's that's cute. Can't yeah. fault him for that. Okay, so first of all, I have a theory that Annie Sue's costumes got switched by mistake because it, the next thing she does is is she assists Fozzie in what is essentially a magician's act, and in that she wears a cute little dress, and in this she's wearing a tuxedo. So I don't understand. Um, oh, but the tuxedo jacket is so badly tailored that I want to scream. Well, I assume because it's it's like the purple tuxedo that all the Muppets wore in season one. So I assume they just pulled it off the rack and maybe ran out of time. Okay, it- but then don't let her turn around so we can see the back of it. But there's something that's also wrong with either the body of the puppet or the arms, or there's something that just doesn't fit together with this puppet, but only when she's wearing the tuxedo. When she's wearing the dress, it looks fine. I wonder if the arms or the sleeves are pulling at the arms or something. Yeah, it made the arms look hollow, like they didn't have any arms in there. It's just like the whole point is that she's supposed to be adorable, and (laughs) she just looks terrible in this outfit. Yeah, there's something kind of uncanny going on where you can see that it's puppetry rather than it feeling like a person. So the first time I watched this number, I thought, oh, wow, this is Louise Gold's first big number. And you can really tell, like, I don't think the puppeteering here is very good at all. (laughs) And then I read Muppet Wiki, which says that according to uh, a conversation that Louise had with her number one fan about 20 years ago, that because this was her first big number, she didn't feel ready to do it yet. And so Frank Oz puppeteered and Louise just did the voice. So then when I watched it the second time with that sort of in mind, I think maybe Frank Oz was actually very appropriately puppeteering Annie Sue's nervousness. But I don't know if that's just confirmation bias. How did all of you receive sort of the physicality of the puppeteering of Annie Sue? I went on that same journey that that you went on. And then when I rewatched it, I thought, oh, it's the limitations of the puppet. He's doing the best that he can. And he's kind of hamming it up as it were. <laughs> and she does some, she does some Frank Oz type moves with the way she walks. And she does the like throwing her head back. And it's, he does the best he can with this puppet, but I think there's something else that's going on. That's making everything feel stilted. But I've been blind, oh, so blind. Wasting my time. Wasted, wasted all so much time. Walking on the wild. Where he lost me. <laughs> Not with the minor. That is also where he lost me. I was like, oh, I really like the song. Oh, and now this is happening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, thank you. So this is a song called The Show Must Go On that was co-written by Leo Sayer and uh, David Courtney and uh, recorded and released uh, in the UK in 1973. And it was his first hit. It uh, uh, peaked at number two on the British charts. 
And it was on his debut album called Silverbird. What is it with him and birds? Maybe there's a thing happening here. This episode in um, birds. Yeah. Uh, so the the song was actually covered by Three Dog Night. And their version uh, in 1974 peaked at number four on the Hot 100. Yeah. Apparently it was their uh, seventh and final gold record. Hmm. Four went out for Three Dog Night. Yeah. This is a lot. <laughs> and we were talking about it as we were watching and... <laughs> Mom, what what was the thing that you said about the mime? Yeah, at the very end of the song, they show him, you know, as a mime singing. And I asked her, <laughs> I'm like, I don't understand. I don't think mimes are supposed to sing. You know? <laughs> well, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, I had so many other questions. I didn't even get to that one. You're right. That's why you all have me here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're coming back every week. Yeah. <laughs> It just seems like he's having some sort of circus-themed fit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know that, like, people have problems with clowns, and there's, like, clown phobia is a real thing, but, like, this is more like a clown mania. It's it's upsetting. Are are mimes clowns? Well, that's the thing is... I mean, I'm sure there are people who would happily come on and debate in is a hot dog a sandwich fashion, you know, whether a mime is a clown. If you cut it in half. (laughs) (laughs) If you can serve half of a mime to two of your friends. (sighs) Okay, well... There is a website called differencebetween.net, which is the first result if you Google, is a mime a clown? <laughs> oh, this is going to be my new this to that.com. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, mime yeah. employs the art of illusion to create invisible objects. On the other hand, clowns refer to comic performers who use slapstick to perform comedy characterized by oversized clothing. I don't agree with this definition. I'm moving on. Yeah. Well, but, well the reason that I, I mentioned clowns at all is... Like, apparently, he did entire performances of the song places dressed in, like, a Piro costume. Yeah. Okay, wiki diff is also a thing. Sorry. Um, <laughs> moving away from that. Well, um, and I think we should say, in case people don't know what a Piro costume is, that that has similar makeup to my makeup, except it tends to cover the whole head instead of just the face. And then it has sort of the big, like, floofy white, you know, like a gay French clown. Yeah, the, the classic <laughs> French clown. I was going to say the kind of clown you'd see on a lamp. The, um. Yeah, the white, the the white baggy outfit with like the pom poms down the front mm-hmm. and the pointy hat yeah. and the yeah. white makeup. So it's it's similar makeup but different. I so there's a scene where Doctor Teeth and Leo Sayer discuss the arrangements for the song and how this was this was not the arrangement that he had sent, but he liked it anyway. Which I was curious about because this is a very banjo-forward arrangement, and the Muppets are often very banjo-forward. So I was curious about that. I don't normally uh, do a ton of research into the music because I really enjoy having Christy tell me things that shock me when we're recording. But so I went and looked up the original song, and uh, it is, in fact, not very different from the arrangement they do on The Muppet Show. And then I, f- and I found him do like, a concert. Like, not just he, So he did the song in the Puro costume, like on you know, top of the pops or whatever. But like, he apparently did whole concerts in the Puro costume, not just the one song, which is a real commitment to the bit. (laughs) Yes. 
I just, I, it's, it's, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but this week we have a, a music hall bit in the UK spot, and it's a bit of a palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> she was a dear little dick keeper. She went hiding. Sweetly, she sang to me till all my money was spent. Then she went off song. We parted on fighting terms. She was one of the early birds, and I was one of the worms. She was a dear little dinner. Pretty amazing that we're hitting up the entire, like, Dickie Bird canon. What if we've only scratched the surface? I, I mean, I, I feel like we may just be scratching the surface. Uh, th- so this is a song called She Was One of the Early Birds, written by T.W. Connor in 1895. Shout out to the public domain. T.W. Connor was the pen name of Thomas Whittacombe, who had two careers. In addition to being a successful songwriter, he worked as an administrative officer in the Port of London. Oh. Good for him for having a day job. No shame in that game. Other song titles uh, that he wrote included A Little Bit of Cucumber and Has Anybody Seen Our Cat? (laughs) If we ever do a Muppeturgy trivia game, we will definitely have to have a category of is this a real music hall song or did Christy make it up? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Did the cat Um, take the cucumber? Yeah. Or eat the, the early bird. Yeah, apparently uh, this was the despacito of its time. Uh, it was described in an 1895 newspaper as the rage of London. So just think about that for a second. And it was introduced by George Beecham, who uh, was promoted by himself as an eccentric vocal character comedian. Yeah, this is another wild and tragic musical performer story. Uh, he married fellow performer Nellie Lingard in 1889, but she died of tuberculosis in late 1899, age 31. Mm. He continued to perform, but died in a hospital in Liverpool while on tour the following year, age 38. His death was from pneumonia, and according to Wikipedia, possibly the result of a somewhat dissipated lifestyle. Somewhat dissipated. I don't know what that means. Not entirely. Yeah, just just a little bit of dissipation. I did not know that dissipated meant overindulging in sensual pleasures, but now I do. <laughs> oh. I also decided to finally look up what a dicky bird is. And it turns out a dicky bird is a generic term for any kind of little bird, such as a sparrow or chickadee uh, that dates back to the 1700s in England. So like on Sesame Street, little bird could be a dicky bird. Well, and the the bird in question in uh, the number here is the the smallest of the birds. It's, It's very dainty. And vaguely reminiscent of little bird. Yeah. This is fun, but it, it definitely raised some questions for me about Gonzo, because I I, I, th- I thought his deal was chickens. I didn't know that it extended to other much smaller. Fowl. Well, the chicken thing hasn't really fully come in yet. He did have an affair with cheese. Right. That's so true. I think this is just like a step, <laughs> another step towards that direction. Sure. He's, he's finding himself. It's fine. It does feel like. There's something going on with birds. 
doesn't it always? And it's like not even just this episode. Like this season, I think there's just like a lot of birds. We're only two in. <laughs> I know, but like we know the bird-headed folks are going to show up again. Like I haven't been watching ahead, but I have very distinct memories of the Liberace episode where there are a lot of birds. Well, they built them. They have to justify their existence. Yeah, I guess. Speaking of we built the Muppets, we better figure out how to use them. <laughs> miles and miles of empty space in between us. A telephone can take the place of your smile. But you know I won't be traveling forever. It's cold out, but cold out. So a lot to unpack here. Uh, Let's let's start with uh, the history of the song. It's a song called When I Need You that was written by uh, Albert Hammond and Carol Bayer Sager. We will definitely get into some more Carol Bayer Sager uh, later in the run of the show. And uh, this was another uh, Leo Sager hit. This was also uh, a number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and... You know, uh, number one on the UK singles chart, big hit uh, in the spring of 1977. And Billboard actually ranked it as the number 24 song of 1977. Interestingly enough, the melody of the hook of this song is identical to a part of a Leonard Cohen song called Famous Blue Raincoat. And Leonard Cohen was asked about it in 2006 by Canada's Globe and Mail. And and he said, yeah, somebody sued, sued them on my behalf. And they did settle, even though he laughs. They hired a musicologist who said that particular motif was in the public domain. Shout out to the public domain. Mm-hmm. And in fact, could be traced back as far as Schubert. Famous Blue Raincoat has a melody? Yeah, you only really discover when people cover Leonard Cohen songs that Leonard Cohen songs have melodies. Mm. Uh, I want to just, I want to credit this appropriately. Um, our, our friends, uh, Mark Blankenship and Sarah Bunting, I think I mentioned last week, or maybe it was the season two finale, um, have by the time you hear this, completed a, a series on soft rock of the 70s, which they are ranking by moistness. This song is in it. And in the in the comments on their Patreon um, just today, as we're recording this, um, Jen Hunt wrote, is when I need you about masturbation? And I admit I kind of zoned out while this was happening because it's kind of dull. And I went, oh, wait. And I went and watched it again. And yes. Oh, no. <laughs> It has to be. So Does that I mean... don't know uh, if, if. Oh my have... goodness! I'm reading the lyrics. And I'm saying very right. I know we have some overlap in our listeners. So Jen, I don't know if you actually listened to Muppeturgy, but I wanted to, to shout you out in case you do. And thank you. When I need love, I hold out my hand and I touch love. I just close my eyes and I'm with you. I I I. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so we should mention that uh, Leo Sayer is, is singing this uh, at the top of a tree in a set that I think of as the Canadian Forest of Despair because because <laughs> it's it's not not the the regular one. It's the one that appeared with Cloris Leachman and the Mounties. This is, has to be another one of those situations of you know you you build it, you use it, the Ventiface principle. Yeah, and so it's it's Leo Sayer at the top of a tree, surrounded by uh, various uh, forest critters, including some of our friends from Emmett Otter, who are are, are singing this <laughs> lovely plaintive ode to masturbation with him. 
so it's it's more than that. So they they have him up a tree and are trying. So he's singing the song up a tree. It makes no sense, but it could be one of those situations where like he needs to be. Re- you know, they're they're not obviously singing the, the lyrics literally, and he needs to be rescued, and that's why he needs her, him, them, and so the the bear seems to be the leader of this group of uh, mostly non-carnivorous animals who are trying to get him down. And, and then they succeed there. The beaver gets involved. The bear takes out one of those fish, the swordfish, right? It's like a swordfish, but like not, cause it has like a, like, like, a, a, saw. like a saw where the sword where it first knows and like uses that on the tree. The, but this fish like must be dead, right? It's so <laughs> weird. And weird. <laughs> They succeed in getting the tree down. So now Leo Sayer is on the ground straddling the tree trunk. And apparently what they wanted was to fuck Leo Sayer. (laughs) Because the bear comes up behind him and like hugs him from behind and is just like caressing him very tenderly. That explains why before when the bear has Leo's foot in his mouth, neither of them seems particularly worried about (laughs) it. And it also explains why he sings. Part of the song is a tender duet with Mayor of Waterville, Harrison Fox. Also, which who is one of the carnivores involved. I, it just, dramaturgically, the storytelling here is very strange. It seems to be a happy ending for all, so great. No judgment. <laughs> Forest orgy, everybody wins. But it's so weird. We have to make a t-shirt that says Forest Orgy, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds messy. <laughs> With just a picture of Emmett Otter and no other explanation. Yeah, just a picture of Mayor Fox. <laughs> it's so strange. <laughs> and it doesn't really help this very sleepy song. Oh, I think it helps the sleepy song. I I was surprised by how entertained I was by what would otherwise be an extremely boring song. I feel like this is a great slow dance at the middle school dance number, you know? Like, it's it's just sleepy enough that you dim the lights and you play this song and the little seventh graders hold their arms straight and far away and sway back and forth. It's, like, custom made for that. Yeah. And that's how he's singing it. He's singing it wistfully, gazing off into the distance while all these animals try to eat him or fuck him or whatever they're doing. I even if we don't understand the scenario, I'm amused. I will say the first time I watched it, I noticed there's one shot where you can see the wires where they've rigged Leo Sayer for when the tree falls. And it made me so nervous. Oh, <laughs> I was like, he's going to fly in the Canadian forest. What is happening? Well, it's cold out, but hold out and do like I do. <laughs> Oh, this brings back so many teenage memories for me. Oh, goodness. Of what, Susan? (laughs) Are you sure I was old enough to be on this podcast, (laughs) It's a family show, in this case. It's not. We have an explicit tag for a reason. (laughs) Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? Well, let's get down to show business and discuss whether Fozzie is wearing enough clothes. 
So after forgetting why he came on stage in the first place, Fozzie eventually remembers that what he's here to do is a memory act. He also forgets the name of his lovely assistant, Annie Sue. He manages to refer to her as anything pig, Annie dash thing or anything pig, Miss Thing Anything Thing. <laughs> and <laughs> as he's struggling to remember her name because he's failing terribly at doing a memory act, Annie Hoo Ha Pig. <laughs> That's very cute. Fuzzy eventually remembers that what he's supposed to be doing in this memory act is describing where someone in the audience is sitting based on Annie Hoo-Ha Pig's description of what they're wearing. Okay, do it. Okay, the mystery person is wearing a little brown hat, Yep. a white bow tie, Yep. with red poker dots. Yep. Yeah, well, so is that, is that all he's wearing? Come on. Yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, that means, apart from a hat and a tie, he's bare. That's right! It is! It's you! It's me! Of course it's me! I have questions here. Red polka dots? Yeah? Are, aren't they pink? Aren't they like a magenta they're kind color? Of red in the center, but the way they're spread on his tie, it makes them look pink? They yeah, look pink, I, though. I've always thought of them as being kind of like a magenta color. I mean, yeah. they match his nose. Really nitpicky. No, you're right. I had the same thought. Was aren't there aren't his polka dots pink? Also, the way she says poker dots is so poker. Cute. That's very funny. I appreciate that we had that conversation in the Chloroleach Twin episode about why Fozzie Pig looked so much more naked than Fozzie Bear, which this doesn't resolve. But I appreciate the confirmation that he is in fact naked. Well, we've already been over this. In good grief, the comedian's a bear. Right. True. Or no, he's a not. He's wearing a necktie. What I find incredibly funny about this is that later on, Frank Oz would go on to direct a feature-length version of this sketch called In and of Itself, which you can now watch on Hulu. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll wonder how they did it. All those things are true. Yep. That was an amazing mess of mediocre mediocrity. You can say that again. Want to bet? (laughs) Well, we flew through this episode. Does anyone have final thoughts they'd like to share? I have one. I noticed since our previous discussion of the uh, new and improved closing credits and the uh, features for all of the various instrumentalists, I noticed that Floyd's guitar in his feature lights up. Huh. It's very cool. Good for Floyd. Thank you guys for having me. I've I've really had a good time. Thanks so much for joining us. We'd love having you. We're so happy you were here. Oh, Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing the Roy Clark episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word with a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Top Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. I mean, I'm not anti-bird. I am. Oh, a little bit. They creep me out. <laughs> Lousy, mangy dinosaurs. <laughs> it just reminds me, an excerpt mate of mine who, who grew up in rural Northern California once told me, never feel guilty for eating chicken. They're vicious assholes.